Good morning, church. It's good to be with you. Love seeing everyone reading their Bibles as the word is being proclaimed. Uh, Paul writes to Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. And uh, as I was seeing you guys with your Bibles open, reading as Peter, our friend Peter, was reading to us, uh, I just love you. I love this church. I love what God's doing in this church, the commitment that we have to the word. Um, I'm excited to preach the word to you this morning. The passage, uh, if you haven't already, turn there, is Judges 21. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one. We've got copies of Gospel Transformation Bibles in this room here off to my left on the bar. We'd love to give you a Bible as our gift to you. And if you haven't noticed already as well, if you haven't turned there, Judges 21 is the last chapter of Judges. So today marks the end of our study through Judges. Everyone goes, oh, right? This is the 21st and final week that we've been studying through this book together. And I don't know about you, but Judges has been very intriguing to me. It's been very complex, painful at times. But ultimately, I pray that it's been a joy for you to study. It's been a joy for me to preach and study uh, seeing Jesus, our desperate need for Jesus in every story. That's been the main theme that we've highlighted throughout Judges. And I, and I pray you have seen Jesus more clearly through Judges. Amen? Amen. Anyone seen Jesus more clearly? Yeah. Cool. Goal accomplished, right? Yeah. I might just be able to sit down right now, actually, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, we've seen a lot of God's grace and patience with a rebellious and faithless people. We've seen God's wrath and his anger, his judgment at the disobedience of the people. Uh, but I, we've seen every week, and we try to do this intentionally, that Judges and the Bible as a whole is one big story that points to Jesus. So with that being said, let's turn to Judges 21 and look there. Judges 21 is not only the last chapter in the book of Judges, but it's the last chapter in a story that's is seen throughout Judges 19, 20, and 21. So Judges 21 is the final chapter of a story that began in Judges 19. And if you can remember there, if you were there at the sermon, it was a Levite and his concubine. And a Levite takes the concubine and takes him for it as a wife, but she leaves him and he goes out to pursue her. He takes her back and on his way back home, he comes to this town called Gibeah. And he has, he's staying at a house in Gibeah, worthless men surround the house. They beat on the door and they ask, uh, bring out this Levite that we may have sex with him. Now, I should have warned you too, Judges 19 through 21 is very graphic and outrageous and dark. It's not for the faint of heart, but they essentially want to gang rape this man. And in an act of callousness and abuse, the, the concubine is thrown out to these worthless men and she is abused all night. She dies and as if the story couldn't get worse in Judges 19, she's cut up in 12 pieces and sent throughout all the tribe of Israel. Now, last week we looked at Judges 20. Nathan talked about Judges chapter 20. And Judges 20 is the tribes have received the remains of this concubine, and they want to do something about it. They rally together. They're unified together. And they come to the tribe of Benjamin. They say, give up the men of Gibeah, these worthless fellows, that we may put them to death and purge the evil from Israel. But Benjamin doesn't listen. They would rather defend their own than to stand up for what is right, and they go to war. Israel goes to war with themselves. And all the tribes go to war against Benjamin, and there's a couple attempts that don't go well for them, but they eventually plan an ambush. And they draw out the tribe of Benjamin from their stronghold, and as they draw them out, a, a, a group of soldiers come from behind and destroy the city. 
Now, the original audience of this book of Judges would have noticed how similar that story in Judges 20 was to a story that's found in the book of Joshua. There's a, there's a story where the Israelites ambush and attack and lure a people out of their city and light it on fire, and it's enemies. It's called Ai. It's a story that's found in Joshua chapter 8. And there's a couple phrases that are repeated there. A great cloud rose up out of the city. That's found in Judges 20, 38. And in verse, 20, in verse 40, the whole city went up in smoke to heaven. There's also a repeated phrase there that they fled towards the wilderness. These are all phrases that are repeated in that story of Joshua chapter 8. And I say that little side note to show that this is where Israel has come now. They have gone from attacking enemies, ambushing and burning enemy cities and foes and conquering them, to attacking their own. This is how far downward the, the tribe and the people of Israel have spiraled. And they not only defeat the tribe of Benjamin, they kill 25,000 troops, only 600 remain and, and flee to the rock of Rimon, but they commit genocide and they massacre whole towns. They kill and destroy every Benjaminite town. And this is where Judges 21 picks up. Now the men of Israel have sworn at Mizpah, none of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. Now this was probably a vow that was made when the people came together, as recorded in Judges chapter 20, when they gathered together at Mizpah, and they made this vow together. We're not going to give any of our daughters to Benjamin. And this essentially has created a problem, because now there's only 600 Benjamite men left, right? And they probably didn't have advanced sciences and biologies at that time. But only having men, there's no way to procreate, right? We know this. There's 600 men. There's a problem. This has essentially led to the extinction of a whole tribe of Israel. And this is what happens. They, they go in verse 2. They come to Bethel, and they sat there till evening before God. They lift up their voices, and they weep bitterly. And notice what they say in verse 3. O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel? That today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel. Notice too, the narrator doesn't record an answer from God because the answer is obvious, should be, should be clear from the story. Israel has sinned. They've rebelled. They've continued to rebel. They've acted wickedly. They should know what got them into this situation. They massacred all the towns of Benjamin, and they only left men. Why has this happened, right? And before we go and critique the, the dullness and the stupidity of the Israelites, wouldn't it be good to reflect upon, don't we do this sometimes too? Isn't it easier for us when tragedy and heartache and problems occur to blame God than to do some self-reflection? The situation that they're in is not somehow God's fault. <laughs> All of this started with worthless fellows, vindictive justice, the massacre of the tribe of Benjamin, and a rash vow. So the people get up early the next day. They build an altar. They offer burnt offerings and peat offerings. And they see who of all the tribes of Israel didn't come to the Lord with the assembly. For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, he shall surely be put to death. Now the narrator is giving us a second oath that they made. So they not only were not going to give their daughters in marriage to the tribe of Benjamin, but they were going to kill anyone who did not come to battle with them against Benjamin. Right, so the, the thinking was, since this 
concubine and her remains were given to all the tribes of Israel, all of Israel was expected to fight. And if anyone didn't, they were going to be put to death. So the narrator is telling us of this oath, and verse 6 is an important verse in the story, I think. It says, And the people of Israel had compassion. They felt deeply. They felt sorry or regret or loss for Benjamin, their brother. And they said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. So verses 1 through 6 kind of outline the background of what's going to happen in, in Judges 21. Right? The problem has been made. They give a description of the two oaths, and they show the heart of the people of Israel for their brother. They have compassion on him. They, want, they see his suffering, and they want to do something about it. So with this problem described and the two oaths mentioned and the compassion listed, they want to try to figure out how do we resolve this issue. So they discover that when the people of Israel were mustered, that is, when the roll call was given to go up to battle against Benjamin, no one from the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead came out to fight. And this is their great plan. The thinking is, so since we can't give our daughters in marriage to Benjamin, and since we made an oath that anyone who doesn't come to battle is going to be killed, win-win, right? This is the solution to our problem. We'll kill everyone there, unless they're a virgin, and we'll give wives to Benjamin. Sounds like a great plan. And this is what they do. They devote everything to destruction, which is, again, another phrase that would have been repeated in Joshua that was used to describe their enemies. So, again, this is where Israel has come. They devote everything to destruction except for 400 young virgins. And verse 13 records that the whole congregation now with these virgins, they send word to Benjamin, who was hiding, and they were at the, the rock of Rimon, and they proclaim peace to them. But there's another problem. Right? You don't have to be a, a great math whiz to do this math. 600 men... 400 virgins. 200 guys are out of luck. And this is what they do. They say, they, in verse 15, they have more compassion on their brother Benjamin. They say the people of Israel had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. So the people of Israel need to devise another plan to provide 200 more wives for these men. And again, in verse 18, they repeat this vow. Yet, we cannot give them wives from our daughters, for the people of Israel had sworn, cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. Right? Here we get a little more detail about the oath. Not only did they swear not to give their daughter to the tribe of Benjamin as a wife, but if they did, they would be cursed. Now, I don't think we should miss the fact of how serious the Israelites are about this vow, Right? It's mentioned twice, and it's mentioned that there's going to be a curse if, if someone doesn't follow it. You see that? Mm -hmm. But let me remind you of what Judges 3, 5 through 6 tells us. The people of Israel took daughters from pagan nations and gave their own daughters to the sons of pagan nations and served their gods. You see the hypocrisy of what's going on here. They, don't, they vow not to give their daughters to their own tribe, Benjamin, yet they're willingly breaking the vow that they made with God to stay pure to their own people. Because when the Israelites married outside of their people, it led to idolatry, it led to false worship. And I think we're to clearly see uh, the hypocrisy and the stupidity of what's going on here. The Israelites are more committed to their own vows than doing what the Lord commanded. 
And I think when we see this truth and we see clearly the hypocrisy and disregard for God's word, it should cause us to reflect upon our own heart, shouldn't it? How are we more committed to ourselves, what we want, and the vows that we make, our own commitments, than do the commitments God may have for us? Do we seek to come up with solutions and answers to our problems that are devoid of God's word and his wisdom? The Israelites don't come to God for their problems, but they have a, a plan. They've, they seem to have found a loophole here. So they can't give their wives to the tribe of Benjamin. There doesn't seem to be another town that they can massacre and give them their virgins. And if that was, they didn't throw it out there in, in this story. So they need to find some sort of way to provide wives, some sort of loophole. And how can the men of Benjamin, or how can the men of Benjamin get wives, how can the people of Israel give them wives without giving them wives? You know what I mean? How can they get wives without the Israelites giving them them? So, great plan, encourage and promote kidnapping and rape. That's a good one. So let's have these tribes of Benjamin lay an ambush. And at this feast at Shiloh, when the dancers come out, they can lie in the vineyards and ambush and just take one. That's a good plan. And there's a couple things that stand out in verse 19. They say, Behold, there is a yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Labona. Now, the Israelites were to appear, the Israelite men were to appear before the Lord at the tabernacle three times a year for three different feasts. This is according to Deuteronomy 16, 16. And what's interesting about this is they shouldn't need, uh, what's the word? When you get Google Maps? Directions. They shouldn't need directions to Shiloh, right? If they, if they go there three times a year, do you think they would need directions? This is an indication that the people have not been fulfilling their covenant obligations. They haven't been worshiping the Lord. And as you can see from their behavior, you can, okay, that makes sense. They haven't been worshiping God. Their behavior is terrible. Yeah. Also, the fact that they would promote and encourage taking women against their will and kidnapping at a feast to the Lord shows the disregard and dishonor they have for the worship of Yahweh. Shows how little they respect and re revere him. But in their mind, they're not technically breaking their vow. That's what they really focus on. This is what they even talk about. They anticipate their fathers and brothers coming together and complaining about this issue. And they say, when the fathers or brothers come to protest, we will tell them, show favor to them. Grant them graciously to us. Because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle, neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. This is what they're saying. You didn't actually give the women to them, so you're not guilty of breaking your vow. Here's the loophole. We're not giving them. We might be encouraging kidnapping and abduction, but we're remaining clear of our oath. And again, this is what happens. The men of Benjamin lie in wait in the fields. They lie in ambush in the vineyards. And when the daughters of Shiloh come to dance, they take all they need and carry them off. And everyone returns to his inheritance. This is yet another phrase that is repeated here at the end of Judges. It's repeated at the end of Joshua. But now things are much worse. And the story ends with a phrase that we've seen repeated, starting in Judges 17. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
this is how the story began, and this is how the story, and the story began in Judges 19. In those days, there was no king. In Judges 21, 25, in those days, there was no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So in light of these realities, in light of working through the text, we want to seek to make sense of this story. And the way we've been doing this is utilizing a tool or a, a set of three questions geared at how do we make sense of judges and what do we do with these stories? How do we, what do we do with what, go, what goes down in judges? And the first question, question number one is, what does the story proclaim about God and his relationship to his people? Remember, Judges 21 is the last of three chapters of a story starting in Judges 19. And Judges 19 through 21 is one of the darkest stories, groups of chapters in the Bible. It shows the depravity, the wickedness of humanity. It shows what happens in Israel when they are king, when they reject God's good rule and reign as king, and they do whatever seems right to them. They don't follow God. They don't seek God. They've become like Sodom and Gomorrah. They seek to destroy and ambush their own people. They suggest the adoption and rape of two, girl, two Israelite towns, the women of two Israelite towns. We see how far the Israelites have spiraled downward. Right? This story all started with the murder and rape of one concubine, it led to almost wiping out a whole tribe, the massacre of Benjamite, Benjaminite towns, innocent girls taken against their will, and here's the justice. For one woman, 600 almost suffered the same fate. This is bad. Before we go jump into conclusions about, well, how can God allow this, and what is this? This teaches us nothing good about God. I would, I would submit to you that this is actually, this story is an act of God's grace. That he is showing us what life is like when self is king and when everyone does what's right in his own eyes. It's showing us really what hell is like. A, a people that reject God's rule and reign. They are in sinful rebellion and self-chosen destruction and hell. Right? Judges is, and especially this last portion of Judges, is more of a narrative, and it's describing, one, the great need that Israel had for a king who would unite the tribes and bring some sort of order, but ultimately it's showing our great need for King Jesus, who would be the perfect and, and just and right king. And if you know God's heart as revealed in the first five books of the Bible, you would know that when this phrase has occurred, everyone does what's right in his own eyes, it's another way of saying everyone does what's evil in the sight of the Lord. So the people have ignored God's good and righteous rule. They're doing whatever they want. And Judges 21 proclaims that humanity was intended to be centered, ruled, reigned by God. His good and just rule is for not only his glory, but for the flourishing of all people. And when humanity rejects God's good rule and reign, destruction, ruin, abuse happens. This is what we see in Judges 21. The story proclaimed is kind of showing us the negative reality of that, right? The reverse of what happens when God is king and, and ruling and reigning. The people of Israel and humanity in general, if not rule and reign by God, will worship something else. They'll be ruled and reigned by something else, and they'll decide whatever is right and wrong for themselves, and the poor and the weak will be abused and oppressed. People do whatever right, 
whatever seems good to them. And if they believe that a God exists, they'll relate to him more as a pagan deity and they'll blame him for the wrong in the world. So the people of God don't trust and rely on God's wisdom. They don't look to God to be their good and righteous judge and king. And as the people of Israel begin to solve their problems on their own, they end up creating more, right? They may feel sorry and have compassion on their brother, but to alleviate the suffering, they create more suffering. So, number one, if the people don't look to God as king and center their lives on his rule and reign, destruction, relational and social problems occur, wrong is met by more wrong, tragedy ensues, it just spirals downward. It's hell. Question two, how does this story connect to the larger story of the Bible? There's a lot of cool ways that this does. Already you've seen, kind of we talked about how this shows us how it connects with Joshua and how there's similarities with Joshua and how things have gotten much worse. As we study this book, we see that a book to follow that's written by a guy, a guy named Samuel, First and Second Samuel, is describing the great need for a king and, and judges. Some people think judges was written by Samuel, so Samuel's kind of showing us this great need that we have for a king. Judges 21 also records how a tribe of Israel is saved from distinction. There was 12 tribes. There was almost 11, and now there's 12. And interestingly enough, in my studies, uh, when the first king of Israel becomes king, a guy named Saul, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but he was from the tribe of Benjamin, from the town of Gibeah, right? His first act as king is to defend what city? Jabesh Gilead. So many scholars believe that Saul might have been a descendant from one of these 400 virgins that was taken from Jabesh Gilead and given to Benjamin. I thought that was cool. Yeah. But uh, since Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin, who was from the town of Gibeah, right, this is kind of tying us into that. It's providing some background context for what we're going to see in the next couple books. Does that make sense? From a spiritual standpoint, Judges 21 is showing us how things go from worse to worse to worse. It's showing that the Israelites have moved from destroying Canaanite cities to Israelite cities. It's shown uh, how they've spiraled downward. There's repeated phrases as seen in Joshua that describe how they've turned inward and and started to fight themselves. And and what we've seen throughout the book of Judges is that regardless of how many judges God raises up, how many times God frees them from the oppressors, they always go back to sin. They always go back to rebellion. They continually rebel and the things get worse. Like every generation that comes up after gets worse. They refuse to give up their stubborn ways and their evil practices. And ultimately, this is what Judges has shown us all the way through. Israel's worst enemy was not their enemies, per se. It wasn't out there. They were their own enemies. Israel's own worst enemy was themselves. I was, I was thinking about this week as I was uh, sick. I had the flu this week, as many of you guys have gotten the flu in the last couple of weeks. Uh, Addison and Avery got it earlier in the week, and then Stephanie got it, and then I got it. And uh, as my body was violently being emptied of fluids, <laughs> I was not only giving a living kind of picture and illustration of the disgustingness of sin and the need to purge it at all costs, right? But I was, I was given a, an illustration of what we see in this, in this story, right? Because when you have the flu, right, unlike food poisoning... When you have food poisoning, it's because of something you ate, and then, you know, all the bad stuff happens. When you have the flu, it doesn't really matter what you have inside, right, whether it's good or bad. It's just going to come out, right? It didn't matter that the night before I might have had a smoothie and nachos and ice cream, which 
is a solid staple of a meal for me. And I praise God for his goodness and the taste buds that he's given us to enjoy those meals. But the problem with the flu is that whatever was inside is coming out. Now, I know, all right, illustrations break down, and that's vivid and graphic. But the point is, the problem is inside. The problem is inside. The problem was not with the Israelites that they had these surrounding nations around them. It was they had the sin and the rebellion inside that they did not deal with. They even asked the question, why has this evil happened? And yet they don't deal with it. In the story of the Bible from Judges onward, too, this issue is not dealt with. In the stories of kings, there are some good kings, David, Solomon, but the bad far outweighs the good. Kings is not a good book. Second Kings, things get worse and worse. It gets so bad that the kings and the people are in rebellion, and God has to punish and discipline and send his people into captivity. They're destroyed and, and exiled by the Babylonian and Assyrian empires. God sends prophet after prophet, calling the people to repentance, calling them to remember the covenant, turn back to God, and they don't listen. And they still do whatever is right in their own eyes, and they reject God's good rule and reign, and they rebel. So now we get to question three. What is this story calling us to do or not to do? But in light of these realities, and in light of what the story proclaims about God, our great need for his rule, how it connects to the larger story of the Bible, preparing us for the kings to follow, and also showing us uh, the great problem and enemy is within ourselves. We want to look at question three. What admonition or exhortation does this story offer? In other words, what is this story calling us to do or not do? What kind of warning does it have for us? This is the biggest one that I, I want to talk about. I'm, I'm sure there's others that we could focus on. Uh, is Number one, there's only one. So I don't know why I put that in my notes. There's only one. <laughs> Probably because I cut out a couple pages. Don't seek to fix your problem of sin on your own. Don't seek to deal with evil in your heart apart from God. Remember those two verses that I mentioned earlier that I felt like were important to the story, verses 6 and verses 15, that describe the compassion that the people of Israel have for the tribe of Benjamin? That's a good thing, isn't it? They feel sorry, and they have a love for one of their tribes, their brothers. They, they want to do something about their situation and alleviate the problem. And although moved with compassion, they respond by doing more wrong, right? The, the tribe of Israel, they, the tribe of Benjamin might have more wives, but the real issue isn't dealt with, isn't it? The issue of their hearts, the issue of sin, the rebellion that's from within. They may have provided a way for Benjamin to continue as a tribe, but ultimately the evil that came about is not dealt with because it's the evil that's found in the heart, the depravity that's found from within in our hearts. My friends, at times we can, we can sense that something's wrong, can't we? We can try to do thing, things about it. And we can change a lot of things in our life, can't we? We can change our behavior. We can change our disciplines. We can change our names. We can change spouses. We can change families. Now we can change our sex. We can change our face and our body features. We can change our skin tone but we cannot change our hearts. That is the, the truth of the scriptures. The human, the sinful human cannot change the sinful human's heart. The sin that got humanity into sin, they can't get out of sin because they're sinful. Like everything they try, it's like digging a hole that goes deeper. It doesn't make sense. 
Sorry, I tried to throw out an illustration on the spot. I'm going to stick back to my notes. <laughs> the point is that we are in need of compassion. We are in need of someone feeling sorry for the situation that we, in, that we are in and doing something about it. But we are in need of someone who is not really human or not sinful human. We're in need of someone who is not sinful, that's apart from humanity in a sense, that can come into humanity and save us from the situation that we're in, that can give us new hearts and alleviate our problem. I have another illustration, this one actually in my notes, um, about the fact that we can't change our hearts, we, we can't take what's dead and ruined and stained and make it whole and come alive and be clean. At least I haven't been able to do that. I haven't found anyone else to be able to do that apart from Christ. I was thinking about it like this. For some reason, one of the things that goes bad most frequently and regularly in my fridge is lettuce. Right? I don't know why. Crazy thing, isn't it? But when lettuce goes bad, it's really disgusting. It, it goes from this nice, green, crisp, crunchy to... Uh, goes from green to like brown to black to slimy. It's gross. And I haven't found a way to change when something is, when lettuce dies like that. If, if you want good lettuce and your lettuce is dead, you, you just need to buy new lettuce. Right? That's a disgusting grind. But if you want to garnish your taco or your burrito with that nice, crisp, green, fresh lettuce, and you have slimy black lettuce, you just have to buy more lettuce. And our hearts are black and full of sin and slimy and dead and stained. And no matter how hard we try to clean them, it's not going to get better. We are in need of a new heart. And according to the Christian faith, there is only one who can do this. I'm getting emotional again, man. I just love the gospel. There's only one who can give us, sinful human beings, a new heart. There's only one who can rescue us from the oppression and slavery of sin and death. There's only one who can save us from the, the reign of darkness and bring us into light. And there's whisperings and there's prophecies and there's promises of this one in the Old Testament, but you flip the Bible into the New Testament and you find out who this one is. His name is Jesus. He steps onto the scene and, and you flip into, or you, you turn to probably the, the first gospel that was written, the gospel according to Mark. And it says this, the first statement, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, the word gospel just means good news. You say, well, what is this good news about? What is this gospel? And you skip down a little bit more in Mark 1, verses 14 through 15. Jesus comes to Galilee, and he proclaims the gospel of God. And you say, what is this good news? What is this gospel? He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, the kingdom of God has come near Repent and believe the gospel. Now, why is that good news? The kingdom of God has come near. What does this mean? Well, if we go back to Judges and we see all humanity has rejected God's good rule and reign. All humanity has rejected God as king and become their own king. And we have become, we are sinners by nature and by choice. And there's no way that we can make ourselves right and get ourselves good enough or obtain to going back to God's kingdom and being under his rule and reign. And we don't really want to, to be honest. We need a new heart that loves him and, and cherishes him. 
The good news is that although we could never obtain that because of our sin, Jesus has brought the kingdom to us. He's brought it down. It's come near. We can't obtain it. We can't get there. We can't go up there. We, we can never earn it in ourselves. He's bringing it to us. That's good news. Is it not? That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record Jesus going throughout all the towns and proclaiming this message. The kingdom is at hand. It's also described as the kingdom of heaven is here. It's near. Repent and believe. And Jesus goes around showing people what life is like in his kingdom. He heals people and shows them people are made new. Sins are forgiven. People are made right with God. And he goes and he sees the crowds and he starts teaching them and healing them. And you know what the, the author of this gospel recorded Jesus having on these crowds? They're harassed and helpless. They're people without a king. They're sheep without a shepherd. Jesus is full of compassion. He is moving to do something about the situation that we're in. And he not only heals and he proclaims that the, the kingdom has come near, but he is moved by compassion, so much so. He has so much compassion and love that he goes and dies in the place of sinners. He went to the cross. He becomes the sacrifice. This is what the compassion of Jesus compels him to do, to take upon himself all of the punishment that we deserve for our self-rule and reign and, and the hell that we deserve. He takes it upon himself. The wrath of God that was supposed to be poured out on us, he takes upon himself. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And he was moved by compassion. And he doesn't just create this crafty idea where he's going to now destroy towns and create his own little thing. He does this all according to the, the plan of God. He submits perfectly to God's plan and his will. And he doesn't feel compassion and then move to create more suffering. He suffers. He moves to alleviate the problem of our suffering by suffering. That's good news, isn't it? He provides an inheritance for us, not through injustice, but through taking injustice, through suffering at the hands of injustice. Although he was innocent, he did nothing wrong. He dies a murderer's, a thief's, a sinner's death on a cross. And he gives himself up and secures an inheritance of love and peace and joy through his self-giving sacrifice on the cross. And my friends, I, do you see how this story points to the great need we have for Jesus? How Judges 21 shows our great need for Jesus. I, I pray that you have seen this all the way through Judges. I've been so blessed as we've been doing this. Jesus is so much better, is he not? I want you to see that Jesus is the true, the elder, the just, the perfect, the good, and right, and compassionate brother. See, Benjamin was the twelfth of brothers. These older brothers of the tribe of Israel, they have compassion on Benjamin, but they, they don't fix the problem. Only Jesus does that. He is the true elder brother, the true compassionate brother. He was moved by compassion, and he doesn't want his people to be cut off. So you know what he does? He is cut off so that we don't have to. And he offers, if anyone would repent and believe in him, that you can experience his good and right and perfect reign. There's nothing and no one like Jesus. 
So what Jesus says, repent and believe the good news, the gospel. This is what it means. Repent means you turn from yourself. You turn from your heart that's set on self. It's bent inward upon itself. It's set on rejection and rebellion and ignorance or apathy to Jesus. And it turns to trust in Jesus. It's receiving and inheriting Jesus as your king, living in his kingdom, knowing that there is no one or anyone that's better than Jesus Christ as your king. You believe that Jesus is who he said he is, that he is worth giving everything up for, that he is the treasure and he is supremely valuable. This is what it means to be a Christian. And for the Christian, Jesus is our older brother. He adopts us into a new family where God is our father. We call on him and can cry to him and when God is our father and Jesus is our elder brother and he gives us a new heart by the power of the Holy Spirit, we grow to increasingly love him, submit to him, and want him to be truly seen as the king in our life. Like we want to use all of our resources. We want to leverage all that God has given us to show Jesus is better. His kingdom is better. Trust him. Believe him. I want my life to line up with that reality. Jesus, be magnified and glorified in my life. You are the king. I want to display that. Amen? This can lead us to say what Paul wrote to his friend, Titus. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating others. That's who we were. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We can rejoice in the gospel that although we were dead in our sins, we were following the course of this world, we were enslaved to the power of sin and, and Satan, God being rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. He saved us by grace alone, not so that we can boast in ourselves, so that we can boast in his grace. And we become his workmanship so that God is preparing us and he's got good things for us to do and walk in. So we respond to a story like this in Judges 21 and we praise Jesus for his compassion. We see that he's the, the true compassionate elder brother who has moved to do something about our situation. But that doesn't lead us to say, great, awesome story. We want to be broken about what we see around us, don't we? We want to be moved by this compassion of Jesus to have compassion upon others. We want to be Jesus' sent agents of hope and healing and change in this world. So we want to think about those around us who need compassion. And we want to respond compassionately. We don't want to respond like the people of Israel do. Yeah, they may have compassion, but you know what they do? They solve temporary issues. They provide wives. My friends, we need to be clear and explicit about who really changes and who is the best. It's not because we have good moral lives and we know how to budget a bank account and we've got things in order. It's because we have Jesus. Amen? Yeah. 
He is the only king who provides what we're searching for. His is the kingdom of love and joy and peace. Let's sing to him now. Let's pray.